Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. Today we bring you an episode five years in the making, comprised of three stories from three current or former Colorado Springs residents, completely unknown to one another. All three of these stories are tied together by one man. I'll let my co-producer, Noel Black, take it from here. When you grow up in a town like Colorado Springs, there's something almost mystical about the idea of fame. It was always something far away, and most definitely something that would never happen to you. In the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, there weren't any celebrities in Colorado Springs that I knew of other than the local newscasters. I remember hearing a rumor once that the late jazz saxophonist Kenny G had a residence near Canyon City, about 45 minutes south of Colorado Springs. The story was that it had gold musical notes and a tenor saxophone welded onto a white wrought iron gate somewhere in the hills on the far side of Pikes Peak. There were a handful of big name pastors in the 90s and 2000s, and then notorious criminals housed at Florence Supermax Prison about an hour south of Colorado Springs. There's also the city's surprising pedigree in the horror genre. Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces, who played the original Phantom of the Opera was born here in 1883. And so was Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, hostess of bad B-horror flicks on late-night TV. My first job was washing dishes at a restaurant that her parents owned. The whole place was covered in Elvira memorabilia. But for the most part, people just don't live in cities like Colorado Springs if they want to get famous, or if they already are famous. It's too weird, too provincial, too almost a city, but not quite. So I remembered how dazzled I was when my mom first told me she once went out on a date with the famous actor Lorne Green. If you don't know who Lorne Green is, that's okay. You'll get to know him in the following stories about the bit parts he played in the lives of three people who lived in Colorado Springs. The strange way these three stories about Lorne Green came together is also part of the story. But it begins with my mom, Nancy Wilstead. Well, this would have been 19... Probably 1967, 66 or 67. I was recruited to go to work in Arizona. And my parents sort of made this last stand about weight loss and wanted me to go to this program that one of them had found or both of them had found. They were relentless about wanting me to lose weight. I went to, to camps that were devoted to weight loss. I went to programs. My mom used to take me to these doctors who... We would come out with these paper bags full of pills, most of which were speed. I realize now that my choice of musical instrument was dictated by being on speed because I chose to play the drums and there were no (laughs) girls that played the drums. The boys hated me because I always was first chair because I was taking so much speed that I couldn't help but be first chair. (laughs) So, So this was the last weight loss program that I ever put up with after having been in many, many. All right, so... You were about to go off to Tucson, and so they wanted you to go to this diet center. Uh-huh. The Rice Diet in Durham, North Carolina. And that was a great, the great and lauded Dr. Walter Kempner. 
who was the founder of this diet. And it essentially consisted of these tiny little bowls of rice. And then if you were losing weight on that, which really you could hardly help but lose weight on, then you'd, they'd add a few little pieces of fruit. And then you'd go on from there. And it was like, I think when you got up to the maximum amount of food they allowed per day, you were eating about 600 calories a day. So, of course, weight just dropped off people. Because like, everyone was starving. <laughs> everyone was starving, yeah. Yeah, this was a, a group of starving people. We got weighed every day. Um, weighed and, and I think they oh, had our blood pressure taken every day. And we had to have this elaborate physical before you went into the program. And they took before and after pictures. There were people who came from all over the world. They're actually, the medical reason for this diet was to lower people's blood pressure. So there were people who came from all over the world, and most of them were there to, because of blood pressure concerns. But there were also lots of people who got onto it because of the dramatic weight loss, and so there were lots of celebrities who came there to lose weight. There were a lot of comedians. I don't know. Comedians must be especially prone to being overweight. Buddy Hackett and um, Dom DeLuise and... Peggy Lee had been there, and then when I was there, Peggy Lee's daughter was there, so I used to hang out with her. And then Lauren Green, who was, of course, Paw on Bonanza, Ben Cartwright. I should pause here for a second. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Lauren Green is, and as my mom just said, he was Ben Cartwright in the very popular Western television series Bonanza, and he was also uh, quite famous later on for these Alpo dog food commercials. Come on. Great ride, Victoria. He deserves a barrel of votes for that one. Well, he's gonna get him. Just as soon as I feed Rusty that Alpo dry you've been talking about. He'll love it. We'll see. Ah, Alpo beef flavored dinners made with real beef juices. And protein. Meat protein. Lauren, you're a man of your word. He loves it. Alpo beef flavored dinner? What dog wouldn't? After all, who knows more about the taste of beef than Alpo. But to me, he was and always would be Commander Adama on Battlestar Galactica, the horribly wonderful science fiction television series that came out in the late 1970s, right after Star Wars. There are only two ships. It is a deception. Open fire and retreat from the planet. Apollo. Okay, Starbuck, let's get out of here. So when my mom told me this next part of the story, needless to say, I was shocked, if not a little bit jealous. So he and his friend asked me and my friend Patty to go out on a date with them, and we went to a Janis Joplin concert. Things do have a way of occurring providentially, in a manner baffling to the mortal mind. It was actually a double date because the guy who, that Lauren Green was actually there at the Rice Diet along with a guy who was apparently the producer of one of the shows that he was involved with. Going back a little bit, I mean, there's Lauren Green. You know him from TV. I mean, what did you think? What did you think of him? What did you think of the show? I didn't think, I mean, I was really kind of intimidated. I mean, because to me, he was like, Pa, you know, it's like my own father was very intimidating and he was very intimidating on this TV show. So I thought, well, I not going to say no. (laughs) It really would have felt um, embarrassed about, or I would have felt, you know, reluctant to tell him no. And, uh, and my friend Patty kind of had been the, 
the, you know, had been negotiating this, and so I didn't want to disappoint Patty either. So I said, sure. And plus, it was a chance to see Janis Joplin, so of course, sure, uh-huh. I'll go. I don't remember what kind of car they picked us up in. I do remember that Lauren Green, unlike his television characters, was actually a very refined kind of pretty smooth guy. And we saw her at a big theater. I think it was on the Duke University campus. The thing I do remember is getting seats, getting into the theater, and get sitting down in these th- seats and thinking to myself, I am seeing a Janis Joplin concert with Lauren Green. And <laughs> just thinking this is completely strange. But there I was, and there Patty was, and there was this producer, and, and so we just enjoyed the concert. It was great. Janice Joplin was fantastic. She was drunk, had a big bottle of, I don't know, Jim Beam or Southern Comfort, I think she drank, and she was splashing that all over the stage while she pranced back and forth and sang at the top of her lungs. Lauren Green didn't really look as if he was enjoying it very much, <laughs> but Patty and I liked it a lot. So we were having, they were, they were, these guys were like, you know, a good 15 years older than we were, if not more. I think he was older than your dad. Maybe so. He was 72, and he died in 1987, I think. Yeah. So he was definitely, there was a big age difference. And uh, and matter of fact, I'm not even sure why they wanted to see Janis Joplin, but... Maybe they figured it was a good way to get you (laughs) That's possible. That's possible. That is very possible. Do you remember any of the songs that Janis played? Oh, I remember she, um, all... All the famous ones, uh-huh. you know, yeah, and she and her voice. I mean, you just it just ripped through the whole theater. You couldn't. I mean, I really have never heard anything like it since. Um, No performance ever huh. like Janis Joplin. So you saw the show, yeah. and then and then what? What happened? I think that we went out for some drinks, and they definitely kind of tried to put the moves on us and get us to go back to their hotel rooms with them. And and he was married at the time, of course. Oh, I think both. Oh, yeah. they, both of these men, undeniably, uh-huh. were married, and. Um, so they were just, they, you know, it was one of those kind of sleazy moments in your life when you just think, oh man, is it, you know. And it was, it was in that era of time when it was sort of like you, I think the conventional wisdom was that women sort of pay for their privileges with sexual favors. And so. So did you go back to the hotel with him? We chased Lady Luck till we finally struck Bonanza. With a gun and a rope and a handful of hope, we planted a family tree. We got a hold of a pot. Um, 
Well, I won't ask you any more about that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, after that, did you did you ever see him again? Did yeah, you? We, we saw him around the rice house. That's what we called the <laughs> the diet emporium, where you'd go in for your meager little um, portion of whatever they were going to give you. <laughs> so I'd see him around there, and at meal times meals didn't take very long because <laughs> you weren't going to get very much to eat. <laughs> so, so it, you know, there was lots of time then to socialize and visit. And there was a big porch on the rice house, and you, people would sit around on the veranda. This was the South, after all, and and sit in porch swings or chairs and talk. And yeah, I would see him on TV occasionally. They go, mm -hmm. oh, there he is. Yep. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Did it sort of take the. Uh, take the uh, shine off the whole celebrity thing for you a little bit? Yeah, I don't think I ever really had a lot of that to begin with. I just never have. I've I've always been so um, enamored of privacy that not, that celebrity sort of seems like suffering to me. Mm -hmm. So, and I always feel kind of sorry for people who are celebrities because, like, they can't go to Safeway in their bedroom slippers, and I can. I like, <laughs> I like going to Safeway in my bedroom slippers a lot better. That was my mom, Nancy Wilstead. That piece was recorded about five years ago. After it aired, my former co-producer, Craig Richardson, and I got a call from a man named Mike Matthews who'd retired here but grew up in Los Angeles. He, too, had a story about a brief encounter with Lorne Green. He even had tape to prove it, really old tape from 1965 that we had to digitize from a reel-to-reel. Here's Mike Matthews. Well, uh, I'd always since childhood had an interest in radio and television and uh, at that point I was still fantasizing about such phenomenal success as having my own radio show at the age of 21 uh, in the Los Angeles radio and TV market. Why not? <laughs> and I just, um, out of sheer self-indulgence, decided I would try to, uh, to get these uh, recordings of somebody. And uh, always had an interest, a fascination with movies, movie making. And so I drove over to the Paramount Studios one day, uh, and at some point it must have occurred to me that, hey, I could, I could bring my portable recorder with me and uh, whatever it was that possessed me, I said to myself, maybe I could climb over the back wall and gain access to Paramount Studios uh, with the idea of eventually producing a radio program for young people all about Hollywood. And I found a back wall with some stuff piled up against it. So over I went like Alice into the rabbit hole. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small and the ones that It's just wandering around uh, these, these massive, magnificent uh, sound stages with people coming and going all over the place. And so there I was at the door of a sound stage. And I... Um, by that time, I was on adrenaline and totally exhilarated. And I said, I'm going in. 
And uh, my goodness, it was Bonanza. Bonanza! We chased Lady Luck till we finally struck Bonanza. With a gun and a rope and a hat. Suddenly there I was in the ranch house, the Cartwright Bonanza Ranch House, with people all around uh, murmuring and jabbering and... and uh, I said, well, this must be the right place to be. I'm going to interview Lauren Green. We're backstage at Bonanza. The wheels are turning. We'll be talking to Mr. Lauren Green in just a few moments. Stand-ins are on the set. Lights are being switched from place to place. The camera's been completely moved. The lights have been changed completely. Background lighting is being installed in a very beautiful stand-in with a blue sweater who is looking as coy and as casual as ever before. Her name, I think, is either Betsy or Billy. At that time in the mid-60s, once you're on the lot, nobody asks you who you are or why you're there. They just assume you know somebody and you got a reason to be there. Camera equipment set up. The thing we're looking forward to now, ladies and gentlemen, on the Bonanza set here at the Paramount Studios in Hollywood is talking to Mr. Lauren Green. He's on the phone right now, but will be with us in just a few moments. In the meantime, I'd like to make sure the recording is in place, and Mr. Green seems to be available, so we're going to spray over here now and talk to him. Oops, he's not ready yet. He has another number to dial, and then he'll be set to go. It reminded me of, of uh, this, these great western ranch houses with uh, lots of exposed wood, fireplace with brick, step back a little bit and it's surrounded by masses of equipment, lights and sound and camera and all that stuff. Lots of hustle and bustle. There are 50, 60, 70 people, all with one kind of job or another, jabbering uh, between takes and hollering and milling about, getting ready for the next shot. Um, and I was just entranced. Just entranced. Mr. Green is now not too busy, and we're trying to talk to him right now. Mr. Green has other individuals to cater to before he can get to us, and naturally, we'll have to wait as long as necessary. This was just another day at the office for Lauren Green and, and uh, the other actors on Bonanza. Uh, uh, but clearly, he was recognizable and therefore made a very appropriate target. I, I was past all point of fear, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, he was probably sitting in his director's chair uh, or standing over in a corner or something. And, and, uh, and I just said, excuse me, Mr. Green, would, I, would you mind if I interviewed you uh, for a possible radio program? Uh, he said something like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. And uh, uh, give me a minute. Good shape. He seems to be available now. And if we can get just a couple of comments from him about radio and television and this type of program, Bonanza, a series, going into its fifth year, it's kind of an outstanding accomplishment. The crew is very close together. Uh, the youngster, Mr. Michael Landon, uh, the youngest on the program as far as characters are concerned, is now talking. Oh boy, it's getting hard to, hard to coordinate. He's gonna, Mr. Green is back on the phone, and uh, I can't do too much. No, lady, I just have to stand around and be quiet. Mr. Green will be with us in just a few moments. Testing and then he went and shot another scene or whatever, and then uh, returned to his chair, and I sat down next to him. Speak to uh, Mr. Green. Um, when you said that the, the most important or the most enjoyable part of this type of program 
is improving and expanding on the character you portray. Yes, to find new facets of the character, to dig, to dig deep. You know, you dig for gold in the hills, and uh, every time you find a new facet of a character after playing the character for a long period of time, it's like finding, it's striking a new bonanza. If you find Stuffy. <laughs> Pontifical. Uh, hearing him now and uh, on the tape, I'm saying, geez, this guy just goes on and on and on. And uh, he's, he's preaching and he's pontificating and he's just boring the heck out of me. <laughs> it was natural. He was appropriately condescending. <laughs> and, uh, you know, telling me, young man, it's your duty to your God, your country, and your world to get an education. And here's why. And I'm sitting there going, oh, tell me something interesting, dude. I feel that education is a, uh, is a necessity in these days. The more a person knows, it's always been true ever since the year one, the more a person knows, the more he can do. The more value he is to himself, the more value he is to his family, the more value he is to the community, Number one show on television. I didn't know what I was in for, you know, I, what the heck? Uh, Einstein, Pasteur, all these people, um, and so many thousands. Did that change your impression of Hollywood, that, that experience at all? Uh, no, in as much as it, it was a welcoming experience. Everybody treated me like I was one of the gang had a right to be there, and uh, uh, if I were to go back, I'd, I'd want to talk to crew members and uh, other folks besides just the stars. That would be much more interesting as I think about it now. But um, no, it was, it was just further reinforcement that uh, being on a movie set was a wonderful place to be. And... Uh, I was on a natural high cruising the freeways back home from this uh, exhilaration on the set. A few brief observations about what took place this afternoon while I drive home. Might as well make use of the time we have. The name is Matthews. We've spent an afternoon at Paramount Studios talking to, uh, well this is unimportant really I'd say, uh, just so that I get on the freeway and able to keep talking with most of the road noise eliminated and I, I guess we'll be able to do I that. I had the idea that it'd be fun to do a restaurant based radio show uh, with the clinking of glasses and the rattling of plates in the background uh, and then I would roll in these spectacular interviews I got from the Hollywood landscape. Um, and uh, the fantasy was that I would simply be the star. And uh, I said to myself, why not me? But never made the big, never made the big connection from fantasy to reality. Taking place right in a very centralized location. One thing that most people don't realize is that actors work six days a week but their, their filming and shooting is coordinated so that they often have seven weeks off in a row. And this does a lot of them a lot of good because it's hard work. 
especially working on a television series. As you hear stories like this about people sort of yeah, climbing the back wall and getting their break, but this was sort of it. <laughs> this was it until today. <laughs> yes, 45, 45 years later. That's, that's right. But I remember reading that Steven Spielberg did much the same thing. He wandered around the back lot at Universal uh, in his youth, and uh, somehow it, with him, it stuck. <laughs> with me, I just went back to college and pursued my pursuits w without understanding that, gee, I really might have a shot at the big time. Uh, I just went back about my business and largely forgot that I'd scored a coup. I've been pretty happy with the way things have turned out uh, work-wise, career-wise. But I think I might have had more fun if I'd uh, taken the leap. I might even have to get a motorcycle to negotiate this traffic in and about town with adequate saddlebags for the equipment I'll need for doing this kind of work. So how does it feel to know that this, uh, that this tape will finally make it onto the air? It is deeply satisfying, gratifying, um, enriching. I'm just, I'm just happy as a clam. Uh, I've enjoyed every minute of this uh, 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 rendezvous with a destiny that um, never was. <laughs> Who would you interview now, if you could, if you could bust onto the Hollywood set again? Oh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure I'm as interested in Hollywood now as I was then. Uh, I, I would, I would take my, my interest in other directions. I would, I would be more interested in the story than in the celebrity, um, and, and just kind of. Uh, get out there and talk to real people. <laughs> That's where I'd head if I were going to do something right now. I'd just grab a recorder and wander. Like there's a, there's a guy down on the corner of Tejon and, and uh, Boulder who sings beautifully. His name is Vincent. And uh, he, he makes a buck or two singing Willie Nelson-style folk songs uh, at that, uh, the corner where that coffee shop is. And I'd walk up to him and I'd say, okay, tell me about it. Testing one, two. Hello, hello. So, you said you've been singing out here for 15 years? Yeah, I've had a lot of really cool experiences. One time a patrolman came and he gave me a hundred dollar bill because he had heard that I was afraid to play out there that they did Again, that was Mike Matthews, and I produced that story with Craig Richardson back in 2010. After sitting on these two Lorne Green stories for several years, I wondered if, by chance, there were more. If there might be some other cosmic connections out there between Colorado Springs and the Canadian actor Lorne Green. So, earlier this year, I put out one more call on Facebook for stories about Lorne Green. The final story, after this break. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Noel Black.
Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. This is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. In this episode, we're sharing stories about three current or former residents of Colorado Springs, all of whom are tied together by one man, the Canadian actor Lauren Green. My co-producer, Noel Black, picks up the story. The last time I saw Callie Stromer, her name was Callie Vanderwall. We went to high school together briefly in the late 1980s, and had a few mutual friends. We became Facebook friends years later. I noticed that she'd moved to Canada, but never bothered to ask why. Then, when I put out my last call for Lauren Green stories, I got a private message that she, too, had a personal story about Mr. Green that dovetailed with the discovery of her true identity. How did you not know you were Canadian until you were 16? Well, I, when, I, when I found out I was Canadian, it was actually because I was doing something that every American should do, and that's file their tax return. And my mother had given me a, um, a social security number, which I believe to be correct. So file the taxes and, and try and get some of, some of the, uh, the income tax withheld back. Um, when you get the return letter from the IRS saying, well, this number doesn't match your name, um, you know, huh. What, what's going on with that, Mom? So she she ended up having to tell me that way. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, it was kind of like this huge mass sense of betrayal and, and how dare you keep this secret from me for, for all this time. It wasn't, it wasn't really until maybe a year or two later that I started kind of looking at, well, you know, who else is, uh, you know, who else can I relate with? And... Uh, and yeah, then and I stumbled upon Lauren Green's name, and and then thought back to that moment when I met him, and thought, huh, that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of neat. Callie's story begins in 1974. She was only two years old at the time when her mom, then named Marcia Spread, moved them to Los Angeles from Canada. My mother sought her fortune in Hollywood. Um, she assumed a, a false identity once she got to L.A. Marcia became Michelle, and she changed their last name to Vanderwall. Callie grew up knowing nothing of her Canadian roots, just an ordinary kid in L.A. I don't really remember a, a whole lot of it other than, you know, sometimes walking to school and there being the odd flasher. But, um, it, you know, it was kind of interesting. It was always hot. Hollywood, at the time, says Callie, was in a golden age of a particular kind of corny TV. Battlestar Galactica and Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, you know, all the, the, the really great cheesy calm drums of the, of the age. Love, life's sweetest reward. Let it flow. Unlike many who seek their fortune in Hollywood, Callie's mom wasn't interested in fame. I think she wanted to be more of a, um, you know, backstage um, wardrobe prop person more so than an actor or actress. She had really bad dyslexia, so, um, you know, memorizing lines and, and things like that wasn't, wasn't something that, that she was really well suited for. So 
I think, you know, she, she'd always been a, a, a seamstress, you know, working with textiles and things like that from a, from a pretty young age. So that's really what she wanted to do. But without, without even a high school education, let alone a degree, and it, it's pretty tough to break into the, into the market there. One of the jobs she did get was at Universal Studios as a stunt woman on the show Battlestar Galactica, the space opera that starred Lorne Green as Commander Adama. She played one of the Cylons, these sort of stormtrooper knockoffs whose suits were metallic silver instead of white. She had a slim build, but she was also super tall for a woman, So, um, but she didn't necessarily tower over the actors either. So uh, that kind of physical combination um, resulted in her being you know, shoved into the metal suit more often than not. So she's frequently on set for Battlestar Galactica dressed as a Cylon, and it was through that that she met Richard Hatch and then Lauren Green. Richard Hatch was something of a teen heartthrob with his long black hair, aquiline features, and Hollywood tan. He played Apollo, the good son of Lorne Green's character, Commander Adama. Mr. Hatch came over to our house after work a few times to visit with my mom. And I was really young, so I didn't know what the relationship was between him and my mom and why he was coming over. Um, and I never really got it out of her. They would sit around and drink beer, or, you know, play guitar or whatever. One night, Hatch brought his co-star, Lorne Green, with him to their house. Like many kids of our generation who'd fallen hard for Star Wars, Callie was already a huge fan of the Battlestar Galactica space opera. And though Richard Hatch was the heartthrob, it was Lorne Green who left the biggest impression on Callie. I knew exactly who was coming into the house when, when, uh, you know, when both Richard Hatch and Lorne Green came through the door. It was the 70s, so they, you know, both of them had jeans on and and Mr. Green had sort of a button-up shirt with a jean jacket on. I was only six or seven, so lots of those details are, are pretty fuzzy, but I do remember that he had such a commanding presence when he entered. You know, he did kneel down to introduce himself to me rather than bending over, right, and still having that, that superior aspect, I suppose. And maybe that's why it seemed you know, that much more intimate is because he, you know, he came down to my level. He had a very paternal presence about him, and he made me feel so important and special when he introduced himself, and his voice really actually did fill up that room. I was starstruck, and, and you know, maybe your memory kind of um, makes it seem more important than it is, but I just remember being in total awe. Of course, as a little girl, I wasn't allowed to stay up and join in the conversations, or but it was, it was still generally pretty neat to be able to say that two of the most famous guys in Hollywood at the time had been in my house. I don't know. It was uh, it was always kind of neat to uh, to to be able to say that yeah, the, these folks were in my house and and uh, you know as a kid I remember saying you know to my friends at school that wow you know Commander Adama and Apollo were at my house and, and of course my friends at school never believed me. My teacher even called my mom to the school to ask why I was making up crazy stories. Years, I was a huge Lauren Green fan just from that one interaction. I remember just making sure that I stayed up and, and stayed lucid enough to be able to watch it when it when it aired. So, and it still kind of does have a, a special place in my heart. You know, the the remakes have kind of been disappointing from that aspect because it's tough to to gain that same sense of childhood wonderment that you have or something that did touch you. Like, having met him, did that take any, like, did that affect how you 
saw the show because I, I think when I was a kid and having grown up here in Colorado Springs, it was like, I didn't, I mean, these all just seen, the shows appeared by magic. It wasn't like I knew anything about acting or production or any, it was all just like, it was as if it were just, you know, somebody were filming some space opera in space, <laughs> you know, it was, it was also real to me. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the death of the suspension of disbelief that, yeah, you've met these people, you know, that what they're doing out there isn't real. So then you start, you know, looking at some of the the things on the periphery and, oh, that looks like a soundstage or that's this or that's that. But um, the curtain's definitely been lifted. When Callie was eight years old, the smog in Los Angeles was so bad that she and her mom left Hollywood and moved to Colorado Springs. It would be another eight years before Callie discovered that she was Canadian, that her mom's and her identity were false, and that she and Lauren Green had more in common than she thought. Can you describe when you found out you were Canadian and at that time do you rem- <laughs> did you think back to like what did, did the fact that Lauren Green was Canadian <laughs> sort of pop into your mind yeah once I once I discovered I was Canadian which wasn't until I was 16 then yeah it was uh, you know it, it's kind of like well who else is Canadian oh Lauren Green cool I met him that's so weird you know you start thinking all these cosmic thoughts and you know how stars are are aligned or not aligned or whatever else. Commander Dharma, this 13th colony, this other world, where is it and what is it called? I wish I could tell you that I know precisely where it is, but I can't. However, I do know that it lies beyond our star system, in a galaxy very much like our own, on a planet called Earth. Callie Stromer, a.k.a. Callie Vanderwall, moved back to Canada shortly after she graduated from Palmer High School in Colorado Springs. Despite never finishing college, she's become the manager of communications and marketing for the city of Leduc in Alberta and runs super marathons. Her mother, Marcia Spread, who she knew as Michelle Vanderwall, suffered a stroke, has schizophrenia, and now lives in a nursing facility in Canada. Mike Matthews is a retired communications professional who now enjoys photography and video production. My mom, Nancy Wilstead, is now a retired nurse practitioner. She specialized in women's health and was one of the first nurses in Colorado to open a private practice in the early 1990s. This episode of Wish We Were Here was produced by Noel Black and me, Jake Brownell, for KRCC. Special thanks to Craig Richardson, producer of the show Critical Karaoke, who co-produced the first two stories that you heard in this episode. Thanks also to our intern, Maddie Howard. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, The Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak. Check them out at thebluestar.net. If you enjoyed that episode of Wish We Were Here, we hope you'll check out some of our previous episodes which you can find in the iTunes store or using the Stitcher mobile podcast app. While you're there, please consider rating the show, telling us what you think. For Wish We Were Here in KRCC, I'm Jake Brownell.